We started on Easter talking about how Easter changes everything, how we can be made new. And we're going to continue in that discussion this morning. On Easter, we talked about how because of the the power of the resurrection, we can be made new. Then we saw that uh, the next week we saw that we can move past our past by his, uh, with our faith in him, by his strength and his leadership, his guidance, we can move past our past. We depend on him for forgiveness and grace. Then last week we talked about how we can uh, be adopted into God's family. One of the things that happens when he makes us new is he adopts us into his family and we become children of God. Then this morning, I want us to meet a guy who shows us how we can live by faith. This guy's going to show us what it looks like to live by faith. If you have your copy of scripture with you, we're going to open to Luke chapter 7 and begin at verse 1. Coach Lewis did an uh, excellent job this morning speaking to our men's breakfast, and uh, you could tell that he, he, part of his story was that he grew up in church, in a Baptist church, and uh, we could tell that because his, um, his talk had three points, and they were all alliterated, and so that, uh, we just all felt right at home to hear three points with alliteration. This morning, I'm going to absolutely break all the rules. We're only going to have two points. And they're not alliterated. Let me show you Luke chapter 7, beginning at verse 1. I want you to get to know this guy that shows us what it looks like to live in faith. After he had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Jesus has just finished uh, in chapter 6 what what many of us call the, uh, the Sermon on the Plain. You've heard of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7. In Luke 6, Jesus um, has a very similar sermon, ser- Sermon on the Plain. I believe it was a separate event from the Sermon on the Mount. Others think that it was one event told by two different hearers. It doesn't really matter. The point is that he has just explained to them the kingdom. Think of a, 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 a shortened version of the whole Sermon on the Mount. That's what you get in Luke 6 as Jesus teaches the people. It's an explanation of his kingdom. And so in verse 1 again, after he had finished all his sayings, after he had explained to them what the kingdom looks like and how to live in that kingdom and how to be a disciple, after he did all of that, it says he entered Capernaum. Verse 2 then Now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. A centurion is a Roman soldier, more than a soldier, he's the the, the highest of the uncommissioned officers. He he would have somewhere between 80 and 100 men under him, hence the word centurion. You can hear the word century Uh, based on the word for hundred. He he had close to a hundred men under him. The fact that uh, this was a centurion in this region uh, means that this was a powerful person. 
He was kind of in charge, if you will, of making sure that the Jews behaved themselves in Rome's eyes. Being a Roman soldier, it was his job to kind of keep the peace and control the people. And so here is one that is so very different than the people to whom Jesus has just been speaking. Jesus came first to speak to his people, to the Jews. He shared with them what the kingdom looks like and how to have faith. And now here is one that seems to be completely opposite of them. Most of the Jews in that region at that time would have been very poor, would have had almost no power. Here is one that would have had a great deal materially, and he would have had great power. The Jews were supposed to have a background that led them to trust and believe in Yahweh and his Messiah. This centurion would have come from a background that that either worshiped no gods at all, or more likely he grew up learning to worship false gods, pagan gods. So very different kinds of people. Jesus just spent the last chapter talking to his people about his kingdom. And now over here, he meets this centurion. The centurion had a servant who was sick even to the point of death. In one of the other gospels, we find out that that servant who was sick was struggling with some kind of paralysis. He couldn't move, couldn't get out of the bed, and yet he was suffering, which implies pain. And he was not doing well. He was even at the point of death. Verse 3, then, when the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. Here is a centurion who finds out that Jesus is coming into his neighborhood. And so he gathers the leaders of the people that he is supposed to oversee and says, would y'all go talk to your rabbi and, and ask him to come. In that picture, we see what it means to live in faith. And we first learn that I can act on my faith. To live in faith is not just to say, I believe this set of truths instead of that set of truths, or I have this religious label instead of that religious label. To live in faith is to say that I not only believe certain things, but I trust in those truths. I depend on Jesus Christ. I don't just believe the historical facts, but I trust in him every day. Here is one who was learning to live in faith. He he had already heard about Jesus. He knew who Jesus was. And when he found out that Jesus was coming to town, he got some of these people with whom he worked on a regular basis. And he said, would y'all go talk to your rabbi Ask him to come and heal my servant. Verse 4, when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation 
And he is the one who built us our synagogue. Imagine what that must have been like that these elders, these Jewish elders are saying that Roman centurion is a good guy. The value of reputation, the value of a good name, spoken often in the Proverbs, the value of a good name is perhaps overlooked too often in our current culture and society. Here, this guy has earned a good name. The the elders of the oppressed people say, he's worthy of our help. He has helped the nation of Israel. He even built us a synagogue. You can tell that this man has, is at least in the process and probably already has become a person of faith. And in so doing, he has built for himself a good name, a good reputation. Verse 5, we, we look again, it says that he loves our nation. He built our synagogue. Verse 6, Jesus went with them. And when he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends saying to him, Lord, don't trouble yourself. I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof. In that, as we, as we come to see this centurion, we come to meet him. We're reminded that I can act on my faith. He found a way to reach out to Jesus and ask Jesus to come and do something. It doesn't make any difference if you and I accept the, uh, the intellectual facts about Jesus. When it really makes a difference is when we start depending on him and trusting him. Jesus, would you come help me? Jesus, I need you. I trust you. And so James says in chapter 2 at verse 26, as a body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Saying you believe is very different than living in faith. It is when we live in faith that our works demonstrate that we trust in him, that we believe that we have faith. You may remember hearing about the the family whose house caught on fire. They had a place outside where they were to meet if that ever happened. And they thought everybody made their way out of the house to that meeting place and then realized that a little boy was missing. Dad, stand, dad looks up and he sees the little boy in an open window and realizes that The boy can't escape from that second story because of the fire. And the boy is standing in the open window, screaming for help. Dad stands below the window and he says, jump, I'll catch you. But it's late at night and so everything is dark. And the the fire puts light up on the boy, because of the fire, the the, the father can see the son. 
But as the sun looks down, all he, looks, all he can see on the ground is darkness. The father says, jump and I'll catch you. And the boy says, but I can't see you. And the father says, jump, I'll catch you. Just trust me. And the boy says, but I can't see you. And the father says, but I can see you. And that's the only thing that matters. Have you been through the flood, through the fire? Are you going through the flood, through the fire now? And you can't see the Father? So often we want to put him in a box. We want to define him our way, limit him so that we can understand him, so that we can fit him into our perspective, our viewpoint, our understanding. And all the while he's saying, you can't see me, but I see you. Trust me. I think it is at those times that we can't see him. That we need to know that he's there. When we can't see him, we need to hear him say, be strong and courageous. Fear not. I am with you. Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 1 reminds us that faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. We can't see him, but we can know he's there. We know him. We can trust him. From our centurion friend, we learned that we can act on our faith. He had already heard of Jesus, but when Jesus was in the neighborhood, he acted. Hey guys, would y'all go invite him? Would y'all ask him to come? Jesus, would you come? I need you. And then there, did you notice in verse 6, that was interesting to me the first time I read it, Earlier in the text, the Jews said of this centurion, he is worthy for you to help him, Jesus. He's a good guy. But look at how he viewed himself in verse 6. Jesus went with him when he was not far from the house. The centurion sent other friends, so these are new, different guys, to meet him on the way, saying, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. That humility. He says, Jesus, you don't have to come any farther. I'm not worthy to have you, a Jewish rabbi, come into my home. Verse 7, therefore, I did not presume to come to you. That's why I sent the elders of your people, because I didn't presume to come to you. Then he says in the middle of verse 7, but say the word. And let my servant be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. Now verse 8 is not, is not bragging about his power. We just saw his humility. I'm not worthy for you to come to my house. 
So verse 8 is, is not his bragging about power. What is he saying? He's saying there is power in the word of someone who has authority. So he says, Jesus, you don't have to come. All you have to do is just say the word and my servant will be healed. I know that because you have that authority. I understand authority. When I tell that guy to go there, that guy goes there. I know what it means to be able to speak with authority. And Jesus, I know you have the authority over sickness and death and sin and hell and all of nature and everything that was created. You have that authority. You need only speak. And from our friend, we learned this morning that Jesus can do anything. I can live in faith because I know Jesus can do anything. So here he says, Jesus, you don't even have to show up. You don't even have to get here. I know that just by speaking, you can heal. This happened another time as well. You may remember Jesus spoke healing before he ever got to the place where the little one was so sick. Here, the centurion knew that Jesus had the authority and could do anything. So in verse 9, when Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him and turned to the crowd that followed and said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. This guy is a Gentile. He's a Roman. He's a soldier. He's a leader of the soldiers. He should be the, the last one to trust in Yahweh or Yahweh's Messiah. And yet, even in all of Israel, I have not found one with this kind of faith. It's interesting that Jesus was amazed by this guy. You see that in verse 9? When Jesus heard this, he marveled at him. That means he was amazed at this guy, the last guy on earth who should trust him. And yet he, nobody else in the nation of Israel has that kind of faith. Jesus was amazed. That word is only used one other time for Jesus in the scriptures. Here it says he was amazed by the faith of this Gentile. The only other time that word is used of Jesus is when it says he was amazed at the lack of faith of his own people. I wonder, if you lived in Jesus' day, if you hung out along the shores in Capernaum, would Jesus be amazed by your faith? Would he be amazed by your life? Jesus can do anything. And when we finally wrap our brains around that and we start really trusting, putting our lives in his hand, we're going to be amazed as well. Unfortunately, we keep trying to put him in that box, overdefine him and limit him and explain him, understand him. When we're not called to do any of those things, we're called to trust him. Faith is not just believing, but it's depending. 
1893, an engineer named George Ferris built a machine that bears his name, the Ferris wheel. When it was finished, it stood 266 feet tall, carried 36 cars that were each 13 feet wide. It was powered by a pair of 1,000 horsepower engines and could accommodate 2,160 riders at a time, lifting them the equivalent of 26 stories high. The first Ferris wheel was built to withstand 150 mile an hour winds, which turned out to be good because on the day that it officially opened, there was a very strong wind blowing in off of Lake Michigan. Ferris invited his wife and a newspaper reporter to accompany him on the first ride. Because of the wind, the reporter was a little uneasy about getting on board something that tall. But they got on, and the wheel turned flawlessly. After one time around, the machine stopped, and they stepped out. Later, the reporter would write about his experience, and he made a very interesting observation. In braving that ride on the Ferris wheel... He explained how each one of them had showed real faith. George Ferris had faith in his invention. Mrs. Ferris had faith in her husband. And the reporter had faith in what Ferris had told him about the wheel. But only after the ride could it be said that all three of them had personal experiential faith. You see the difference. It's one thing to say, I believe. It's something else to completely trust and depend on the one who can do anything. That's when it becomes personal, experiential, real. Nothing is too big for Jesus. He can handle whatever you're going through. You can trust him with the worst that life has to throw you. Colossians chapter 1 and 18 reminds us that he is the head of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. And I want to conclude our series with that verse because Easter changes everything. And the way it changes everything is that he who is the beginning, he was the firstborn from the dead, the first to experience resurrection. And in that, we learned that in everything, he might be preeminent. No matter what you're going through, he's got it. And if you'll let him, he's got you. Stop putting him in a box and trying to figure him out. Just get on the ride. Hang on tight and trust.